and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hello, Tom. Happy Easter. How are things? Happy Easter to you. Yes, I'm feeling very um, Easter Monday today, having had a lovely day yesterday. I presume, I presume you went round on an Easter egg hunt, did you? You mean a chocolate decorative sphere <laughs> pursuit? Sphere. Well, not quite sphere. I guess an, an ellipsoid, three-dimensional <laughs> yeah. ellipsoid in, in foil with... with have you noticed how much smaller they're getting with with tiny you know you, you you buy this one you only get tiny little bag of whichever branding it might be of chocolate it's it's most depressing and, and upsetting i ha- i have noticed that that's my main measure of uh, of inflation in fact is, uh, is rising <laughs> chocolate prices rising cho- less chocolate for the same money but yeah no, a lovely roast lamb yesterday was was fantastic I have to say i love i do love that at easter time we're going to have a slightly lighter episode this time because last week we 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 had quite a heavy discussion actually didn't we, <laughs> we did. uh, which, which alas can't always be avoided um, it triggered me but, ben uh, it triggered me yes yes we we, <laughs> we could have we could have driven people to need uh medical assistance couldn't we after after some of last week but this time we're going to talk about comedy um and we're going to be talking about uh all sorts of things faulty towers friends little britain um and this has all come about from a chat that you and I had, Tom, hasn't it? About mm. um, the the death of Stalin, which came out, I can't remember when, the a few film, years ago. Not the historical event. The film. And I I was watching it, and it people are absolutely raving, were absolutely raving about this film when it came out, and uh, it's by uh, the creator of The Thick of It, which I loved, very funny. Um, and I was watching The Death of Stalin, and I just couldn't find it funny. I just couldn't find it funny, and the the reason why I think was was just it was I found it impossible to separate the 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 chaotic manner in which the death of Stalin is handled both in the film and in historical fact, um, and and derive humour from it, and I, I think it's just because we've not come to grips with communism in the way that say we have about the Third Reich or. Uh, or, or whatever else, um, and I just couldn't find it funny. I just didn't think the subject matter was fitting. But wasn't that point, Ben? I think the whole way in which the death of Stalin gets set up, and and it's difficult. I don't want to give too much away for our listeners if you haven't seen the film. But likewise, um, if you have seen the film, um, you, you you know, I'd like to see whether you you agree or, or with me or, or with Ben. But I felt the point is to make you feel intensely uncomfortable about what's happening and it's puts it at the same time puts a wry smile on your face so the first scene where they're recording the um uh, I can't remember which particular piece of music it is but they want a recording yeah. to go right the way back to Joseph Stalin he asks for it and I believe they had do they have to replay the concert or something yeah, at the beginning they do they do. They they replay it, um, and the and fear, the fear of the yeah. person who is doing the recording, the fear of the musicians, the fear of everyone doing it is palpable, and it makes you feel uncomfortable. And initially, I didn't think it was a comedy when I saw that scene. It didn't feel like a comedy, um, no. but I think that's the point. And it's so, it's so unsettling. And but but here's the crucial difference, right? So I'm saying I I just didn't find it funny. My, my reaction to that was to turn it off about halfway through 
I didn't then decide to try and get the the writer or the actors fired or hounded out of their jobs or blacklisted or punished for making the film. I just thought, well, you know, this isn't my cup of tea. I don't find it very funny. I turned it off and that was the end of it. Did you see General Zukov? Did you get to yes. that point? Yes. You must yes, I did, have loved yeah. General Zukov with that, with that <laughs> northern accent, utterly incongruous <laughs> with uh, the Kremlin coming in and slapping everyone on their shoulders. That's brilliant. I thought that was comedy genius, Ben. You, you got yeah, that bit just, and you still turned it off. I just found it too unsettling. And the casual violence and all, and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, and I just felt there hasn't been this reckoning with, with mm. Soviet communism in the way that there has been with, with Nazism. And there, there, of course, has been this very long-running debate now um, about what's acceptable um, and about yeah, I suppose it goes all the way back, say, to, to, to Prince Harry wearing a Nazi uniform, right? And mm. and what the boundaries are for uh, comedy and whether it can ever be in good taste and whether there are just some subject matters that cannot be joked about full stop. Mm. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, for instance, that um, you can never make a joke about communism or the mm. victims of communism because you you can not least because it's a, it can be a very effective way um as ronald reagan did of exposing the absurdities of of the soviet system mm. um but i just didn't find the film funny did you enjoy hello hello when that was on tv do oh, you remember it? You're too young, I think. Yeah, I know if it. I'm. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm a generation too young. Hello, hello was was a little bit more slapstick, shall we say, than the death of Stalin. Yeah. So the death of Stalin with is is a lot more sophisticated, as you say. It's kind of um, uh, based on the thick of it, which uh, never had any theme music at the beginning, which I thought was another stroke of genius. But hello, hello is in your face, and it is extremely funny. I thought it was extremely funny, and it totally takes the rise out of uh, Nazi-occupied France. And everybody, yeah. the French resistance, the British airmen, the uh, German colonel, the Heflick, the Gestapo, they are all game and everything is mocked from beginning to end. And what's astonishing, of course, that's, that's so close to the end of World War II. I mean, we're talking yeah. 40, 40 years or so. Um and I even remember we showed it to a German friend who was visiting, and she loved it. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I don't know what you would make of Hello, Hello and that kind of thing. Would you feel the same? No, I don't think I would. And I think it's because there's no, there's no body of, of opinion that, that defends right. Nazism. Whereas I think there is still huge naivety, particularly among the young, about what Soviet communism actually is. Um, and so I think that probably for me is where the difference is. Doesn't Death of Stalin therefore address that? Because what the Death of Stalin does is you can't walk out of the film and not realise, um, yes, it was in a comic setting, how horribly terrifying it would have been to have lived under Stalin's purges. You can't, you can't, because they're, they're genuinely just walking down the corridors with a gun saying, bang, 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 oh, you're on the list, you're on the list, you're not on the list. And those lists are joked about, but are clearly very, very real when moved into the historical context. So does the film not, in some sense, address your concern? Maybe I'm being too snowflakey about it. <laughs> I found it... I, 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 I just found it too unsettling. I just found yeah. it too unsettling. And I, I think there's a sense in which there hasn't been justice for the victims of Stalinism. I think yeah. that's part of it. Because I, I, I was really thinking about it, because lots of people... 
um, you know, lots of friends had really said, oh, you, you know, you studied Soviet history at university, you'll be really interested in this, you'll love this film, you like the thick of it. So I kind of ticked all the boxes for, for somebody who should have really enjoyed this film. Mm. Um, and it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't quite work. And I think it's because there's not been that reckoning. But I, I remember reading, I don't know if this is, um, I, I, it was some years ago I read this, so I hope this is correct, but I think it was a test screening of, of Dad's Army. Mm. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that the audience absolutely hated it because it was seen as being so disrespectful. Um, the home guard. Uh, and the, yeah, and, and the invasion scare was was so recent. You know, it was only 25 years or whatever ago. So it was very much in in living memory. And there's lots of historians who now would say, actually, the invasion scare was just a scare. There was no plausible way for Britain to have been invaded and, and so on, um, which I think is a quite compelling argument. But if you lived through it, it didn't feel like that. It felt absolutely real. And so the home guard um, it was not a subject that people wanted to be uh mocked it was all too raw and too recent um and and of course dad's army is absolutely treasured and beloved now and has been across the generations um so it's it's interesting how things change but but i think there is just a difference between the ussr and nazi germany and the way that the nuremberg the nuremberg trials um yeah uh the the war trials were clearly um a big moment and a critical moment. And you're right, there was no such thing. I, I mean, there was a different kind of a reckoning, I suppose, in the fall of the USSR itself. But you're right, that doesn't, that's no reckoning with however many millions of people actually suffered under the purges. Um, you, there was an artistic reckoning with people like Solzhenitsyn, I suppose one could say, um, who was so vocal at that time and, and, and bringing out into the open what had really gone on but you're, you you are right it, it's it's very different but I, I would say in many ways that the the nuremberg trials are the exception um there are not many cases of genocide and of a people uh, being persecuted over history where there's been a reckoning like the nuremberg trial and and so in that sense um that's that's the surprise more than anything yeah and i think it's hard to see how putin will ever face justice in an international court. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, you know, obviously there's an attempt to do that, but it's hard to see how in practice that will ever actually happen. Um, and the, the continuities of Russian history from the, from the present day back through uh, the USSR, back to the imperial period. Um, but Matt, Mao, uh, Mao was never going to get justice, you know, served to him, you know. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. So you're work. right, it was his. It was the, the totality of the German defeat made it uh, an extraordinary circumstance in which there could be a reckoning with with what had happened. Um, but I, I think it, it's interesting how, you know, I think it's fine to watch a film or a TV show and say, I don't like it, or even say, oh, I find that terribly offensive or upsetting. Okay, fine. Um, but the, the distinction then is between people who say that and then just don't watch it or don't read the book or don't listen to the rap music or whatever um and then the people who are so incensed by it that they want to drive the creators out of public life and ruin their careers um and 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 launch uh social media mobs against them um in a very maoist way of course 
Um, and, <laughs> and, pull, and pull it off platforms like Netflix. So, you know, the Jones household yeah. can make a decision. They can say, we are not in the Jones household going to watch The Death of Stalin, or we're not going to watch, yeah. uh, what was the moral panic about recently? Little Britain. You know, yes. that, 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 which was, that which was acceptable 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, is now unacceptable. The Jones household can say, um, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to watch it. But you're not going to expect it to be pulled from Netflix, expect right. it to be pulled from Amazon, expect it to be pulled from all of these places uh, so that no one can watch it or edit it so that certain scenes are never seen again. Yeah, or, or put a, a sort of a content or trigger warning before it. Um, saying, you know, the, as as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Disney putting disclaimers on films made in 2018 or something like that, you know, just a few years ago, and they're they're now deemed to be um, deeply regrettable historical artifacts that are oppressive and problematic and phobic so, so, of this and that. So I've got a question: What is the best comedy at the moment that is currently? being made i mean i i think of things like the stand-up um that chris rock ricky gervais maybe there are some sort of stand-up examples where they've got their own show that they've done but sort of series or big ticket films that are meant to be comedy or comic i struggle a little bit to think of 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 where we find that where we go to find that the, the new classics if you will of tomorrow <laughs> Yeah, well, I saw the other day, um, I think it was last week, in fact, that the BBC uh, will only have one panel comedy show left, uh, which is Have I Got News For You, which I don't know about really? you, but I have, I have not laughed at that in about 15 years, uh, when yeah. Brian Blessed hosted it, which was um, <laughs> uproariously funny. Um, but, <laughs> and loud. You probably yeah. had to put the volume down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that, that was fantastic. Um, but no, I don't know. I've um, I, I've been rewatching a Channel Four sitcom called Fresh Meat. This was about university, um, a group of university students in sort of 2011, 2012. Um, and so it was it was very much of my generation. I watched it while I was at university, mm. so it's quite nostalgic in a way. Um, so that was ten or eleven years ago. I think that was that was being broadcast for the first time, and just. Almost in every episode, there is something where you think, oh my God, they would not say that or do that now, or they wouldn't joke about that issue, or they wouldn't mention that topic. Um, and it, 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 you know, I mean, they speak in the way that university students 10 years ago spoke. Um, yeah. But, but they're not, you know, they're not outrageously offensive or, you know, much less racist or, or anything like that. Um, it, it's just the way in which people, Young people spoke to each other. And there's that terribly horrible word. I really hate it. Problematic. Yeah. All of these comedy series, these scenes, and for, for me, the example is Friends in the 1990s, which was ubiquitous. You could, on some, some days, you could genuinely switch on BBC One and then, you know, um, I don't think we had playback in those days, but we had things like Dave and, and such like that were just coming onto the scene. And you could switch from one to the other. And it was either Star Trek was on everywhere or it was Friends. Um, so you really got yeah. to know the characters. You really got to like the characters and the pickles that they got themselves into. Uh, and you thought that's how New York was for everybody. But now, apparently, those episodes, which were the staple, are problematic. 
as you say, almost every single episode would have something where, you know, that's, that's, um, uh, sexist that's homophobic that's whatever yeah. and 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 you think my goodness me the offense that people are able to take uh doesn't cease to surprise me but but then it's it affect us it affects us affects us as well ben because we're picking up on it and saying oh oh we're cringing thinking yeah and and there's an extent to which we we've we've internalized the those rules because we automatically have that sort of tripwire like reaction of of thinking gosh that would get someone in a lot of trouble now but friends is an interesting example because <laughs> it's it's weirdly popular i understand among um teenagers now uh, and has a huge audience of 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 teenagers watching it um yeah. decades after yeah. it, it, it was last broadcast much less first broadcast so they are watching um, is that right well, the, yeah, but what's so weird is that they're watching it, but there's also this kind of backlash ag- among some because it's not very racially diverse because of uh, the treatment of of gay couples and cross dressing and all you know all these all these modern landmines. So there's that kind of backlash against it, and also there's a sort of cringing from the creators of Friends um, that it that it didn't reflect the city's diversity. Um, in various ways, and so it fails various sort of woke metrics now. So it's 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 a strange anomaly, I think, where teenagers are really keen on it, but there is also this backlash yeah. against aspects of it, and its creators are sort of seem to be shying away from it a little. Have they apologised yet? Because that's the next stage, isn't it? When the creators or the actors and actresses turn around and say, we, we apologise for making a generation laugh in the 1990s. That was terrible of us. <laughs> it's just very strange. It, it, really, it really wasn't that long ago. But so, so one of the characters, if you've not watched it, had a, a dad who was, I think, at the time described as transsexual. Mm. Um, and... I think one of the writers has since apologised for misgendering Chandler's dad <laughs> because he should have been referred to as she. If you follow, mm. if, you follow if you followed that, yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I'm, followed I'm with that. you, Ben. I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm, yeah. I'm ahead of you. Are you sure it wasn't they? <laughs> <laughs> so that's. I dread to think what would happen to Les Dawson, of course, um, who was another <laughs> um, hero of mine in the 1980s, where he was, you know, dressed up as a washerwoman, mopping the steps or, or leaning over the garden fence as a, as a sort of housewife. And it was just this wonderfully um, authentic banter that he could do as, as Les Dawson. And, uh, yeah, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't even get close to the BBC or the TV now, I think. I think one of the pities of it, I mean, aside from just thinking, you know, what a shame it is that, that they wouldn't make it now, which I think is a feeling lots of people have. But if you, if, so another program I watched at the time that, that was very much of my generation was The Inbetweeners, which was about teenagers in, I think, 2007, 2008, something like that, at sixth form. So I, exact, I was exactly the right age, exactly the same age as the characters. Um, and the way they speak to each other, I mean, it's just... it's very sexist very homophobic lots of isms lots of ists um (laughs) but it is the way in which teenagers at that time spoke to each other Mm. and it's completely authentic and it's also by the way not not malicious it's it's just that's the way they they spoke i don't think there's there's that there's malice in it um and so again this falls into into one into the category of 
you know, they just wouldn't do it now, even though that is how the people they're depicting did talk to each other. Well, exactly. It's a reality gap. There's lots of things in different theories between that to talk about gaps, you know, mind the gap. Now we've got this gap between what's created to go onto the screen and the reality, because I don't believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, Ben, but I don't believe that, yes, there are a lot of people self-censoring out there, but I think kids, teenagers, people, they're not in the same way. They are still saying what's on their mind. They're still walking around with their friendship groups, being quite open about all sorts of things. Now, they may be doing, actually, as I think about it, they may be doing a bit more of the sort of um, uh, 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 um, self-censorship than they were back back when you were that age. But I still think there's a little bit more reality. I can hold out a little bit of hope uh, there. You know what? I, you I'd love to know. I'd love to know the answer to that question. If you are a teenager listening to this, or mm. the parent or grandparent of teenagers, let us know what you think about that question. Because there is this this view of teenagers as being very rebellious. I don't buy that. I think teenagers are naturally very conformist. They might not conform with what their parents want, but they're desperate to conform with what their peer group want. And so if they're in a peer group which is absolutely uh, committed to and, and, and devoted to the, uh, the, the woke liturgy... Um, and that's I think the point, going, isn't it? That's yeah, the point. It's yeah. the peer group. It's the peer group's uh, loyalty and allyship. Where does that lie? But yeah, sorry, carry on with the question. I, and I think there's a, there's a gender gap as well, or a sex gap, rather, I should say, between boys and girls, where um, I, I think boys are more willing to, particularly with the trans stuff, I think, uh, seem to be uh, more willing just to say, well, no, that's totally rubbish. However, um, obviously, feminists, adult women, have been leading that conversation in a way that adult men have have been completely absent from that debate, and I think are only now catching up to the implications of it. So I think that's that's quite a strange contrast as well. Um, And... I think there. I mean, certainly at the Free Speech Union, we've seen more cases. I think um, either ones we've been helping parents with, or just reported the news where teenage girls have been pushing back against, say, policies in their school or shared bathrooms and all that kind of stuff. Um, so th- there is some pushback. But I'd love to know from listeners what you think about this question because I don't know any teenagers now so I, I think i feel completely out of touch i can look at what um academics are writing and what polling evidence is saying um but i don't feel that i have a, a kind of instinctive grasp for what the for the way in which teenagers talk to each other so it, it would be interesting so tom do we agree with each other are we saying that it, it it's more what the peer group thinks rather than we I, we agree with each I other think. i i mean i I, yeah. I i don't think that teenagers um uh, uh do what their parents say uh, but yeah. I agree. They always do what their peers say. They've got to be part of the gang. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, all sorts of biological and evolutionary reasons for that and developmental reasons for that, but that makes perfect sense. But what does the gang believe? What are the, yeah. what, are the what does the peer group of teenagers, has that, has that evolved? Because it always used to be, um, you know, quite opposite to everything out there in, the offic- in officialdom. But I wonder if it's not more wokey nowadays. Um, well, let so, us yeah. know what you think. But so, so lots of what we're dealing with often nowadays, some people would say, well, this isn't a free speech issue because it's not the state that's restricting you. It's self-censorship or it's your peer group or it's, or it's just a backlash that you've somehow uh, deserved that has, has resulted in your cancellation. So that's the argument from the, um, from the other side. Um, but 
there is also, well, there's plenty of sources of traditional restrictions on free speech coming from the state, aren't there? Still, it's mm. not just the, the peer group and so on, as we've just been talking about, um, mm. which brings us on to our, our next topic. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a bit of a discussion we wanted to have around how the state interferes with free speech. And one of the triggers for this um, is trigger as a word triggering. I hope not, Ben. Anyhow, one of the triggers for this was that um, in the news, we discovered the Canadian government actually blacklisted 201 companies that were sympathetic to the Freedom Convoy last year. Uh, they, The Freedom Convoy being a group of Truckers, they participated in the protest uh, against vaccine mandates and some other COVID-19 measures in Canada. And the purpose of that blacklist was to was to ensure that these 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 companies ceased dealing with designated individuals. And again, this rather seems um, you know very very much in the free speech arena because a lot of these people are just standing up and saying we don't believe in in the mandates we don't we we support the truckers and uh, and uh, may not even be um you know driving a truck they're just sympathetic to uh, the freedom convoy that's enough to have them blacklisted and essentially make it pretty difficult for them to do their business as normal and it's not for the first time we've we've heard that you know ben i think but the the, the sort of question is okay the government has appealed to emergency laws. The, the government has appealed to uh, COVID nineteen legislation, but is that is that reasonable? And it, it seems it seems that we've kind of got to a an extreme national security level of free speech protection by the state, um, which has all sorts of implications. I mean, one of the things I thought thought about was does that if if you are essentially in a position where you see these companies losing the ability to support just to support something and then move on in society then you know your your normal sense of freedom even when these laws are rolled back which of course takes too long anyhow but even when these laws are rolled back and we go back to for want of a better phrase business is norm business as usual do, does that sense of freedom that you had before ever return because of what you've seen happen because either to yourself or to other these businesses or to the Freedom Convoy itself, does your sense of freedom ever come back? And I, I struggle to see how it could, because you suddenly sort of almost have your eyes open to the world is not how it used to be. And I think it probably would take years, decades for a society to get over this level of interference in free speech. So that that was the that was the most worrying outcome i feel of, of some of these um sort of interferences by the state is that it, it it lingers it doesn't go away easily i think there's definitely a covid hangover um and these aren't free speech examples but there are so many instances in history where temporary emergency measures become permanent and so <laughs> a couple of weeks ago we 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 all changed our clocks or rather they're digital now so they will change themselves um, and it's possible to wake up completely oblivious to the fact that they've changed um, and that was a temporary measure in the first world war um, and then you have income tax which was uh, a temporary measure to defeat napoleon and yet here we still are uh, well i think it was repealed and then brought back in but anyway it's still it's too good an example to resist using um, so yes i i think there is a danger a very real danger yeah. of these things becoming permanent fixtures and i also think that um and this is a bit contrary to our promise to be more positive in this episode but i think the <laughs> constant 
sense of crisis that bedevils our age means that we we can never quite get back to the 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 baseline that we're all hoping for because there's always something um and yeah. so it, it's kind of reasonable to say well during the second world war there have to be uh, restrictions there has to be the defense of the realm act there, there there's a perfectly legitimate reason for restricting free speech so you can kind of concede that um but then when you get to the age we're now in where we're not facing that level of existential uh conflict or war, or war of that scale yeah. um at least we're not in britain um but there is still nonetheless this constant undercurrent of crisis after crisis after I think crisis. that's a really important point. It, 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 we're all on edge, aren't we? We're all on edge all the time. And the happiest amongst us, I think, are the people who don't open up their newspaper <laughs> and or don't or don't turn on the news because it just that's the only way where you can find a place to be calmer. Um yeah. and and the trouble is, of course, as well. Think about times of crisis. We, in micro examples and in macro examples, from the family to a government, good decisions are generally not made. You know, quickly under pressure uh, at a time of crisis, um, and they need to be. If, if you like the, the COVID laws that came in very rapidly back in twenty twenty, for example, you know, no one, no one should think that that's good law, given how quickly it took to draw it up, implement it, and put it in place. And yet, as you say, it lingers on afterwards. So, so bad law. Not only is it that it lingers, but it's bad law that lingers uh, for longer. Tom, I have a good example for you. When do you <laughs> think was the last witchcraft conviction in Britain? If you had to guess, <laughs> you go, is this another April Fools from last week? You're going to tell me that no. it was I don't know last Tuesday or something? Um, it wasn't oh. quite that recent. <laughs> Now, what was the penalty? Can I ask a question? Question about what the penalty was, or do you not know? Yeah, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't death. It wasn't death. I, I, was it the eighteen hundreds? At some point in the eighteen hundreds, that would still seem a little late. Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. Sometime in the eighteen hundreds, I'm giving you a range of a hundred years. It was nineteen forty-four. Ah, and the the reason was it was a woman called Helen Duncan. She was tried and convicted under the Witchcraft Act in nineteen forty-four. <laughs> And it's because she had given a seance in which she summoned the uh, the spirit of a sailor um, on HMS Barham. And oh. HMS Barham had been sunk, but there was no way in which she could have known that. And it was a complete <laughs> So she was convicted? Yeah. So of all, every ship in the Royal Navy she could have picked. She happened to pick one that had recently been sunk, but the news hadn't been reported. And the authorities were desperately concerned about the effect on morale. Uh, I think there was a concern that she might be a spy. Um, but there was no way quite to prove a case against her. And so they relied on the Witchcraft Act. And she was. And has it been repealed? That's the question. I wonder if we could still, we could still get um, uh, um, tried as a witch even now. Well, yeah, I mean, your point. I, I don't think anyone would claim that witchcraft uh, laws were good law. Uh, but for them still to be existing at the end of the Second World War is out just <laughs> yes. bizarre. It makes the point well, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Not just not just existing, but being used still. And, and you know, I think, I don't know how you felt when the COVID-19 laws came in and whatever one felt about those laws and the restrictions that were coming in, that's not 
just free speech, but a lot of it was about what we could effectively say in the public square with the misinformation discussions we've had before. I, I think regardless of whether you think lockdown and the various COVID policies were proportionate or were justified because the nature of the threat couldn't possibly be understood, or whether you think they were completely um, mad and over the top, and whatever your view is of that, I think what is concerning and I think should be concerning to everybody on all sides of that debate was the immense power of the state to shape the narrative, to silence and stigmatise dissent, including from very eminent scientists. Um, and I think all of, all of those things are um, or should have been a wake-up call yeah. to people, even if you think that actually lockdown was totally proportionate because it was it was not quite an unprecedented threat but a threat that hadn't been faced in a century um but, and that it, it was an exceptional incident even if you think that but what i still what, think what, the power of the state what happened last week in the news ben was not only that but there was also um some of the new scientific studies that are coming out that are studying the efficacy for example of masking some with, with new data, new studies, new conclusion. They got there was one study came out with the conclusion that masking. And again, let's not get into whether we're pro or against because we're the free speech union. But you know that particular uh, study was, you know, out there um, and was considered to be relatively scientific. But there was utter silence out there. Once that study, and then it was a, there was a real hard pushback against it because it was against the narrative. So again, whether it's right or wrong, and maybe it's wrong, maybe maybe masking's great, maybe masking's not great. But the point is that when the new studies come out that are against the narrative, there's silence in the first instance, and then after that, there's mocking and pushback, and and that is a very worrying trend. Instead of actually saying, "Hey, interesting study, let's bring it in." talk about it and 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 either dismiss it or 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 it moves our thinking on instead it's that that conversation isn't even allowed to happen on some of these narratives um and and that that is very worrying as a development i think and the only way scientific progress can be made is by letting people express views which are contrary to accepted wisdom or unsettling or strange or bizarre and on yeah. many occasions those views will be wrong sometimes they'll be ahead of their time. I've got a great example of that, actually. Um, there was a clergyman in the 18th century uh, who theorised that there could be a body so heavy that light couldn't escape from it. And of course, we know that now as a black hole. But in the 18th mm. century, um, his prediction was so far ahead of his time that nobody could understand what on earth he was talking about. Um, mm. And so it was, more, it was more or less forgotten and has since been rediscovered and reinvented. And now we know what a black hole is and we can take pictures of them. Um, so I think science has to have room for the scientific method to work um, for, for people to make outlandish predictions. And sometimes they'll be wrong. Sometimes they might even be malicious. They might be deliberate attempts at, at misleading, misinforming. But you have to take that risk. You have to take you that do. risk to make any kind you of do. scientific progress. But the double danger is when the state's behind it as well in some, in some shape or the yeah. arm of the state in some shape or form. So bringing it back to that particular angle to this that you know it's the state's narrative and uh you know the media has come in has come into line with the state's narrative is that reasonable is a fair question to ask uh, i think yeah. so um very very interesting area i think to discuss but anyway we shall see 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 
I'm sure that will crop up again in, in future news items. But anyhow, I think that is probably uh, everything we have for today. And uh, we do, again, wish everyone listening a very happy Easter. Uh, remember to join the Free Speech Union at freespeechunion.org. We do encourage all our listeners to, to go to that website and sign up. It's very easy to do and uh, can be done in a flash on a, uh, on a bank holiday weekend, of which we have many to come. But Ben, do you have anything else to add yourself? No, I just wish everyone a very happy chocolate ellipsoid day. Is that what we decided the shape was in the end? And, uh, and see you next time.